Hello, everyone. This is Artemis from the Uncivilized Podcast. We are uncivilized and unapologetic. It has been a few months since the last episode, and honestly, this one is already kind of late. It was hopefully supposed to go up, you know, before the book that we are going to be reviewing came out. But uh, today is the 17th, and it came out four days ago. Uh, my co-host Brady has had some things going on. He had to go out of state to go see his family, and then came back, and then his apartment was flooded. So, unfortunately, we are having some setbacks, and we just wanted to give you all some context. Uh, ideally, we will get this podcast a little more active before my summer or before uh, summer's over, and I have to go back to college, which we will still do uh, podcasts. But as you know, things have been a little um, slow on our end. So, again, just some more context. So, this is episode 18 of the Uncivilized Podcast. This episode is all about Zerzan's new book, When We Are Human, Notes from the Age of uh, Pandemics, published by Feral House. Uh, Zerzan is arguably the loudest voice of the anti-civilization anarchist movement, uh, speaking to issues as, such as alienation, ecological catastrophe, domestication, patriarchy, and community, or their lack of. Other works that you might want to check out if he interests you would be Elements of Refusal, Future Primitive, and Future Primitive Revisited, Revisited being the newest uh, version of that text, Against Civilization, Running on Emptiness, The Pathology of Civilization, Twilight of the Machines, and many more. Uh, this book was released, like I said, on the 13th of July, 2021. Another review in its text form is from Julian Lehner, who is a friend of ours and has been a guest several times and is hopefully going to be on again soon. And they are an incredible thinker who takes sort of an individualist approach to the critique of civilization. And if you want to check out their their review, it's uh, at the website ecorevoltblog.wordpress.com. I just read it today, and I it's a great one, and it really helped me put a lot of my ideas together for this review specifically, uh, at least some of the wordage that I'm going to be using. So with all that out of the way, let's get into it. And as you know, as I go into this, kind of chapter one, I get a little bit more into the specific details of what he's talking about, breaking it down section by section, because I think it really kind of shows the basis of his thought, because he's very anthropologically centered. He's an anthropological realist, as uh, Lehner calls him. And, you know, that's, that's his perspective. And if that's how he wants to pursue his analysis, that's fine by me. I'm much more interested, in addition to the anthropology, for uh, a lot of the individualist approach and what, you know, as someone who kind of has a background in what you can call egoism, you know, Max Stirner and the like, I kind of center it a lot on that, on a sort of refusal uh, by the individual, but also an acknowledgement of the community and historical realism in addition to all that. The book itself opens uh, with an introduction by James V. Morgan, uh, which I won't get into it because I'm more interested in what Zerzan has to say than what other people's interpretations of the books are. Uh, so to speak, or at least not speaking for them uh, through another medium, if that makes sense. So the first chapter is called Prehistory. And this chapter, like I said, establishes the basis of Zerzan's thought, which is less philosophical and more anthropological or historically based. Uh, the first chapter is all about the growing anthropological evidence that points to Zerzan's idea that civilization is not the beginning of our humanity and freedom, as Zerzan would say, but it, but it's decay. It's It's death. It doesn't begin, but it begins to die with civilization or even with domestication, which is even predates civilization. He confronts the totalitarian nature of the, sim the symbolic, that of which represents something else, such as language or math. The idea of, you know, when you say tree, your association is the physical tree. That is the symbolic representation of the tree. The tree exists regardless of the symbolic. He argues against, I should say, that the symbolic is what makes us human. But in reality, we are human far beyond the symbolic capabilities. And what he considers our humanness, our humanity, predates the symbolic by millions of years. Our, you know, For example, our species ancestors, Homo ergaster or Erectus, possibly had seafaring. And even if they didn't have that, they had fairly complex tools compared to even you know, their ancestors. But without the symbolic expression, the culture, the alienation brought on by the symbolic that comes with it. And so the idea that he confronts some of the anthropological record with other aspects of it that say, you know, oh, we are human when we are symbolic. And that's especially true with the behavioral revolution that kicked off, you know, we see a growth in pottery and uh, wall art, uh, more ornate tools and decor. 
And he argues that, no, that's actually the beginning of what he believes is kind of an anti-human turn in our social evolution. Um, and so really, our humanness to Zerzan begins about two, about two and a half, maybe even three million years ago, uh, before even Homo erectus, but our ancestors uh, that are, you know, considered to be kind of almost uh, chimp-like. So if you know what I'm talking about with that, so Zerzan puts forth that there's a new paradigm emerging that what you know he calls human or humanness that's about two, two and a half, three million years old that goes back to even Australopithecus and, and that sort of genus in that family, uh, which it's, it's interesting, but this is already kind of where my own critique comes from. And again, I kind of preface this that, you know, I can come from an individualist kind of anti-essentialist, so to speak, position. Um, I'm very much, and again, I'm going to mention Lehner, in, in agreement with Lehner on the issue of species essence, which kind of uh, is popularized by Marx, that humans act this way, like that's the core of it, and that we're alienated from it consistently by civilization or to Marx by, by the division of labor and class society. In that, So, for example, a lot of that is like the laboring, like, you know, we labor to recreate ourselves. And I think there's something to it, but I do think that there's a strong sense of far too much essentialism that comes from the collectivity analysis, the idea that we find ourselves more as a collective than as individuals, as opposed to them being more of a dualistic, uh, that they work in tandem with one another. What, you know, what some can call, say, what some may call like a dialectical relationship. Uh, really, that's kind of what it comes down to, where I think me and Zerzan, or me and Tucker, or me and other popular anarcho-primitivist authors might diverge. I'm much more interested in the idea that civilization is what makes us human, and that the concept of a human is this kind of biological, physiological stereotype that's imposed upon us as a form of control. And as opposed to Zerzan thinks, you know, we are human without civilization, but I would say that civilization is quite a human thing, and that we are human. Domestication is humanness. And when I say human, again, it's that stereotype. And I don't mean human as something, you know, like, obviously we're all in some way or another human, but the human is like kind of from a humanistic lens that we are this way and we must be this way. And this is who we are as individuals and as a species. And I think that overlooks the pieces, you know, the pieces and the relationship to the whole. So I think that's largely where I diverge from him from, because I, I just think that, and this is not me bashing Zerzan, because I think this is, you know, Zerzan's been writing this way for several decades. And I think there's a lot of beautiful stuff that comes from his work. But for example, that comes through later in the book that his kind of anti-individualism, that individualism is almost oppressive and that it kind of fueled colonialism. I would actually argue that it's collectivism, a, a vulgar sort of collectivism that feels that sort of stuff. Because you say we as a collective are better than this collective. You know, the, the idea of the civilized having to civilize the savages. But in an individual sense, an individual who does not have the collective power, the collective infrastructure to say I'm better can't really do much. So I think it really does come down to the notion of the collective versus the individual. And I think Zerzan and I, in many ways we agree, but we're using different language. Not to say we, I would, he would probably agree with my analysis, but I do think at times it's almost like we're saying the same thing in different ways, but the way we express it does influence our thought as a whole. And I'm actually going to read a small section from chapter one called human nature, and it's only about a page and a half, so bear with me, and I think this, you know, I want to speak Zerzan's words as opposed to speaking for him. Quote, it's just human nature to blank. Women are by nature blank. Fill in the blanks. Unexam unexamined essentialism, usually in service to the dominant order. But a blanket condemnation of essentialism applied to everything is its own error. Domestication, for, for instance, has an essential poor quality, control. It grows broader and broader, and deeper. According to its inner logic, that is easy to see, an open and shut case of essentialism. Human nature is certainly to be rejected in a generally postmodern, no stable meaning or truth culture. Rousseau found our true nature to be that of pre-civilized freedom. His noble savage conception is roundly mocked on all sides, but doesn't anarchism rest on the essentialist notion that at base humans are good? And that's as per Rousseau. The problem is that we have been debased and corrupted by various institutions. Freud's civilization and its discontents portrayed domestication as an incurable wound to our nature, an unending source of pain that rep represses our original condition of eros and freedom. 
Only the end of civilization or domestication, Freud strongly implied, could cure this fundamental unhappiness. Definitely in essentialist perspective, for more than 99% of our two to three million years as homo species, we lived as mobile hunter-gatherers, foragers. How could this be other than foundational? Edward O. Wilson proclaimed a, quote, predisposition to religious belief, in all probability, an ineractable part of human nature, end quote. This is an absurd judgment, given how very recently, about 3,000 years ago, organized religion entered the picture. Much closer to the mark is the effort by Marinsky and Turner to, quote, discover our human nature by looking at the past, the very distant past, end quote. Our past as foragers and hunters is distant, is distant in terms of its duration, but is also recent, considering that domestication is barely 10,000 years old. We have not lost, we cannot lose, the genuine impulse of living in balance with the world it is the inherent possession of everyone, in the words of Paul Shepard. Similarly, Freddie Perlman referred to the constancy of resistance to Leviathan, the death culture that is civilization. On a very deep level, it is our nature to want what we have lost. So my first point I want to point out is that he believes that anarchism at base believes humans are good. And I'm not quite sure where he gets that notion because I think that, you know, maybe Bakunin in some way believed this, the idea that humans strive naturally for liberty or they should strive. Um, and that's something I would disagree with, even though I'm in many ways influenced by Bakunin. But I would say that, like, they're kind of closer to Marxist in that we have a sort of fluid human nature, so to speak, that it's influenced by the material conditions so by capitalism you tend to produce certain types of humans so i disagree that's even what, with his analysis of anarchism especially contemporary anarchism you know maybe in certain like online spaces people might say that but i would say the kind of intellectual corner of anarchism would reject that claim so i think that's a strong base for zero to to say something like that so i i have to disagree largely with a lot of this you can call a section of the chapter like, sure, on some level, we want what we have lost because we can see the, the physiological disorders that are brought with these new conditions, you know, civilization, that there might be something to that. But to believe that everyone necessarily wants that, I'm not sure is true, um, because I think that kind of gets into the, like, the idea. I know some Marxists believe that all workers are naturally communist, which I, I think that's just a load of bullshit. And so while I respect what Zerzan's trying to do, I think that his, his, again, kind of confrontation with postmodernism, which I'm not going to speak too much on because I would actually refer you to Lehner's uh, review where he touches on that somewhat. I just think that this is, again, the, his notion of what human nature is is kind of foundational to his primitivism. And I'm not going to insult or believe or state that it's wrong in any form, but I just have a different perspective and a different take on what he thinks of that and so after this he actually has a really beautiful section on fire in its relationship to us as individuals and communities he reflects on his own experiences staring into a fire he notes too that the anthropological record of how homo erectus had some measure of control hundreds of thousands of years before our specific species arose and it's back and forth the, the anthropological record that did they specifically control fire or is it more that they might have caught a fire, you know, locally and then kind of waved it around, so to speak? Or was it more that they were causing fires, you know, little campfires themselves like our species is definitely known to be doing? Um, there's also a section that I was surprised by, but when I saw the title of fire, I, was, I kind of saw this coming. He has a critique of Rhea Del Montana and a few others, and her view of that fire is kind of the cornerstone of domestication. Uh, his response is that controlled fire doesn't change the character of fire itself. You can't make it cool or anything like that. Fire is fire. You're just putting it kind of in a new context. And then he's like, you know, fire is passionate and it's changing, leaving no room for its domestication. But I'm, I was kind of left wondering if that's far too reductive of Rhea's own history of, of, human, of humans in their exploration with fire. Um, and so I think it kind of downplays her larger critique that's found in Eco-Patriarchy, which is a work by Rhea that I would recommend. It's definitely a unique one in primitivism, but it actually, the idea that, you know, oh, are, are some primitivists just, you know, why don't they reject fire? Fire is kind of a technology. And she kind of does touch on that a little bit, which is interesting. Still in chapter one, Zerzan also speaks on ritual, something that along with his larger discussion of the symbolic permeates many of his works. I won't speak too much of it here, as I'm not totally equipped to offer more insight than he provides, I would suggest that people read it and kind of 
maybe begin to understand his anthropological insights and how such a thing is the basis of modern estrangement. As a quick rundown, uh, you could see kind of ritual as like the middle zone between sort of primitive spiritualism, a more basic animism, and then a more beginnings of like established religion. And the idea of like having a castly pre or a priestly caste, I should say, that dominates the spiritual world. And we have to go to them as specialists to achieve that. And it's sort of um, at times almost oppressive. And I do actually know that uh, Kaczynski has spoken somewhat of this, that he believes that even there's some hunter-gatherer groups, there's one in Japan that he noted through his own research that it was so regimented that there was like mental health implications for how regimented the, the spiritual world was to them because it had such an impact on their larger life. And so I would, I would, suggest everyone to read anything that Zerzan has written on the on the ritual and at times is very kind of academic but it's still really interesting to understand that transition and the relationship between ritual domestication and patriarchy especially for those that are interested in the way patriarchy relates to civilization ritual to Zerzan and to myself is very foundational uh, the final section uh, from chapter one is titled Go, uh, Gone to Croatan uh, which is a reference to the alleged tree carving near the lost colony of Roanoke. Croatan is a reference to the nearby indigenous group that apparently they might have, you know, left their own community and gone to live with. Uh, this section is actually really interesting and arguably probably one of my favorites from this chapter. Uh, and it confronts the whole issue of, you know, well, no one wants to let go of modernity or what, you know, will we just rebuild civilization again? And I think those are really valid questions to the green anarchy movement. And Zerzan provides insights into the Euro colonizers integrated into indigenous groups more often than indigenous people joining into colonizer society. This applies to those captured by indigenous peoples, but choosing to stay or even struggling to assimilate back to their mother culture, uh, which is after, you know, Thomas Jefferson even noted it. There were people back then that were like really seeing that, you know, we can't get these people to stay with whether it be the indigenous people we forcefully try to assimilate or or to uh the people that were going and i i meant to say benjamin franklin by the way not thomas jefferson that's my apologies and there's a quote from um benjamin franklin actually that zerzan includes and i'll i'll read it here quote when white persons of either sex have been taken prisoners by the young indians and lived a while among them though ransomed by their friends and treated with inimaginable tenderness to prevail them to stay among the English, yet in a short time they become disgusted with our manner of life and take to the first good opportunity of escaping into the woods from whence there is no reclaiming them. Um, I mean, that's, that's true. Like, sure, maybe is it, was it incredibly common to the point that the section kind of implies like this is, was a, almost a pathological issue of Euro civilization in America, but it was occurring to the point where leaders of the civilization had to note it and had to confront that issue. And I think, um, you know, there was questions about what does that mean as civilization begins to decay and contract? Um, and he also, Zerzan mentions Cynthia Ann Parker, who was, uh, is a real figure who was returned to white society, but quote, only to escape twice to her Comanche people perceived as wild and untamable, a threat to colonial society kept against her will. She died early of grief. Until the practice was ended in the 1880s, hundreds of white captives have become more or less completely Indianized. And again, I'm wondering what is the implications for the decay of civilization moving forward? Will people almost want to stay in such an environment, you know, where civilization is contracting away from them? Will people escape to go experience it and realize they don't want to leave? And there's another interesting example that Zerzan uh, notes that some people in the Peace Corps find it difficult that when they come back from these you know, arguably horrible situations that are very rough, but also kind of in a way savage, that when they come back to the more developed communities or nations, they struggle to like readjust. And I, you know, I think of sometimes even like people that are homeless, like I know people personally that have noted, like it's hard to get back into it because there's something about the regimented life that we exist in that's alienated kind of soulless in a, in a way that maybe Zerzan would frame it that it's hard to want to get back into. And I think that's a bit of where Zerozone gets his notion of human nature. And again, there might be something to that. And I just thought that section was actually really interesting. Um, and if other people want to look into it, there's some, you know, I mentioned Cynthia Parker, looking into some of those examples. And there were ones um, of people that like tried their damnedest to get out of it. 
because they didn't like it. So which is why, again, I kind of disagree with Zerzan in that all of us naturally want to get back to that because it's shame that some people simply don't because of the socialization that has occurred within them and the internalization of civilization and of the, the hatred of freedom. Uh, so that's chapter one. Chapter two is titled History and is largely focused on the issue of civilization versus humanity to frame it in a way Zerzan might. He touches on the idea that civilization distills us, it's alienating us, and it internalizes our powerlessness. On page 82, he writes, quote, civilization advance, civilization's advance has always meant more work, and it is increasing control dynamic essentially achieved by reducing work skills. There may be increase in political rights and freedoms, but distilling renders the individual more subservient. Even the semblance of autonomy and self-sufficiency is taken away. Um, that's really interesting because if we think about it, if people have the skills and the drive to want to be self-sufficient, civilization is essentially the, irrelevant. So we have to internalize our hatred of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, responsibility, and that's it in, the, in the same aspect, the growing industrialism, the mechanization of production, and even of childcare, of communication, people are less reliant on themselves. And I think that's a dangerous thing. And I think Zerzan is completely correct and hits it on the, you know, the nail on the head here uh, because labor is a crucial aspect to the creation of the individual in the fostering of community. And I don't mean working for the wage or for someone else because that's absolutely like a domesticated perspective on how we can labor. What I mean is to perform creative acts to be, you know, be it the gathering of food, the creation of, of entertainment such as like music or the raising of a child. You know, we did it by yourselves and together all simultaneously. Civilization takes that responsibility away and puts it into the bureaucracy or puts those skills into the technologies surrounding us uh, as, a, as opposed to by ourselves with a small intimate group. And this closely is tied up to his, his mentioning of the Luddite Rebellion, which Erzane praises here very strongly, as he does in other places, and I'm in agreement with him. You know, some people believe that the Luddites were ideologically anti-technology which i think is reductive they were more or less kind of like unique and that they were like sort of a labor movement but in a sense reactionary as marx might call them because he was at one point kind of praised them but as marx grew older and more mechanical in his in his view of history became opposed to them and essentially believed that they were immature and that the working class was just too dumb to understand the role technology would have for them uh so i think there are also like all of that ties up very nicely together. And I think, you know, these are kind of individual essays, but each chapter, each section flows very well together, which is something Zerzan, in my opinion, has always done very well. So when you read this, you know, you can put it down and then pick up the next chapter and it flows very well. That's something I'm about to get into, which is like the different implications of what it means to be distilled within our labor. In the first section of the chapter altogether, Zerzan talks about how weaving was a taught skill there was both a material tool, so like the weaving of like a basket for water or like for food or even putting a child in it, essentially. But it's also both a communal or like a spiritual act where the style, the form was a story and it was, you know, it, it was a part of your people's culture. It's kind of like a physical memory in some sense, the way you did it and how each, each form of weaving might have represented something. Um, I just think that's beautiful. And he uses some anthropology of, of indigenous people from what's now called California for some specific examples. So I would definitely recommend reading that section, uh, just titled The Weaving. The second section talks on the enclosure and the enclosure act, which for those that don't know was, it, it's seen across several cultures transitioning from feudalism to capitalism, but the specific examples would be like, that was in like Western Europe, so the Enclosure Act uh, that was found in England uh, was the act of the state and or like early industrialists and their interests, removing peasants and other agricultural workers from their land and into poverty and later the industrial workforce, which is how Marx also believed the proletariat or the industrial workforce came into being. The view is not unique to Zerzant. Like I said, Marx used it. You know, it's kind of, essentially a popular historical perspective as long as you're not totally buying into the idea that civil uh, capitalism just nicely came onto the world stage peacefully because enclosure was violent you know they would burn down 
houses and crops. They would come in and tell people they had to leave. Often, if they bought it from them, it was dirt fucking cheap. They did not get good recompense for that the the land. And a lot of the time, the land was where those families had lived for so long. Whether it be they were living on a a manor of you know a lord, or they had maybe had land that was independent of a manor, or they had some kind of relationship with a lord or other landowner. You know, obviously the the land they worked was theirs, but you can talk about the power dynamics between the landlord and the peasant or the worker, which I think Zerzan kind of overlooks here, but still these people were working it and to, you know, to every other extent it essentially was theirs. And so you see all three issues from weaving as a form of community and memory and and a taught skill to the removal of the workers from their land and their skills in the growth of the industry or modernity are all deeply tied together. And even Zerzan talks about the division of labor as it grows, it distills people. You know, Mark, you know, I'm going to mention Marx a few times because I think there's a lot of followers here are leftists and they're familiar with Marx. There is a real, you know, I think he's absolutely correct in that the division of labor, you're, you're pushed more and more into this, like pull, pull the lever, put something in, into the oven or onto the, the conveyor belt. Like there's no, there's less and less skilled workers. Not to say there aren't, there are, but it's becoming less and less. And a lot of the more skilled work is becoming automated. And therefore more and more people are reliant on this system and the communal, the community's memory of skilled labor are beginning to fade. Um, and that's especially true for even now we're seeing uh, the decay of in the developing world, people moving from their traditional lands and life ways into the industrial workforce. Like this is something that is still happening. Enclosure is continuing to exist and, and occur to people and that's just a very vulgar sign of how civilization is acting. So on all of that basis, long live the Luddites. And I think this is one of the section where Zerzan honestly just shines. And I really appreciated the book. Uh, and Zerzan doesn't just attack the material basis of modernity, industrialism, but it, uh, the ideological, the enlightenment. And he shows how this rationalistic and progressive obsessed stage of ideology fueled colonization and imperialism. It was the mission of the civilized to educate or even kill if they did not buy in the savage. The existence of the non-assimilated is a threat to enlightenment ideals. He does not, uh, you know, he does include like interesting philosophy that more or less I'm not super educated on. And so while it's useful and you should read it, you might be ironically doodling a little bit, which admittedly I, I can speak to that. I, <laughs> I definitely did. Um, Zerzan also takes up the task of utilizing ideas of Oswald Spengler, uh, who is a kind of a fascistic, uh, might makes right German ultra-nationalist. Uh, Spengler, according to Zerzan, quote, came up with the remarkable work of meta-history of the theory of civilization. Right away, Zerzan is quick to denounce Spengler's association and propagation of ultra-nationalism. And, you know, he speaks that, and this is true, like, you can take the good and leave the bad. You don't just because Spengler was a piece of shit doesn't mean you have to buy everything Spengler said. And I think, you know, people might call that problematic or whatever, but I think that's just being intellectually dishonest and just fucking lazy, honestly. (laughs) Um, So the basis of his analysis of of Spengler is Spengler's work, uh, The Decline of the West, which he admits is kind of, you know, just knowing how people talk about the West might be, the title might be hard to get into. But he thinks that, you know, the, the history here is important. And I would agree. The idea is that such, you know, that each civilization lasts about a thousand years and that the current one, a fostering civilization, began with the Crusades. Uh, and that each civilization has seasons or periods within them. So, you know, summer, winter, fall and spring, that each one kind of represents a stage in that history civilization. But they're also comparable to another civilization's point in history. So, for example... Alexander the Great and Napoleon, or Indian Buddhism and Roman Stoicism. Those are two examples that Zerzan gives. Uh, and each figure or concept or belief represents, again, a point in the civilization's history. And I will say I'm not overly familiar with Spengler, and I'm not sure if he kind of puts forth a great man theory, or if it's that these people you know, are just apt comparisons, and they're not like some kind of predestined figure that has to exist. Um, and I'm going to skip a few more sections or ideas from this chapter to kind of save time, but to also focus on more what I what I feel to be most important to discuss. At the end of one of the sections, however, Zerzan attacks the Hegelian historical determinism and leftist obsession with progress by quoting Walter Benjamin, quote, 
Marx says that revolutions are the locomotive of world history, or perhaps it is quite otherwise. Perhaps revolutions are or should be an attempt by passengers on this train, namely the human race, to achieve or to activate the emergency brake. And Zerzan follows this quote kind of with his own meditation on the issue, saying uh, that the brake is a brake with, with history. Uh, we were conscripted into history and we must make our exit from it. And I think that's a really good way to put it that light. Instead of seeing revolutions as this progressive form that civilization develops and develops and assimilates and assimilates, we need to see as a way to get off of this this fucking disaster, this this predestined almost train track. Um, he also has a certain section called A Note on Freedom, which I won't get too much into, but there's a really simple photo take from it. Quote, Enrico Marcedini points out that civilization not only impinges on freedom, but reduces the desire for such an environment, largely replacing it with a fear for freedom or of freedom. And I think that's the truest summary of the reality. Like, if you think about it again, which is ironically kind of feeds into my criticism of, of, of Zerzan's idea of what human nature is and our natural appeal to what we have, quote, lost. Uh, the so I think he kind of overlooks the impact of socialization despite quoting kind of from my perspective in a way. And then the last two sections from chapter two I want to touch on are actual nihilism thoughts on San Francisco Bay in the 70s. And then also a section called a also a spiritual movement. The first one is a deeply personal meditative chapter for Zerzan, and I want to express my sympathies to how he feels about his experiences. He noted that how many groups like the Panthers, the Symbios, the Symbios Liberation Front, and other groups, or the Weather, you know, the Weather Underground, were very revolutionary, and then kind of just fell to the impression of the government and self-destruction within themselves. He even mentions like the hippie movement, which wasn't necessarily revolutionary but started as kind of this free love, freedom movement, but fell to like hard drugs, and a lot of overdoses and self-destruction. He just seems very melancholic, recalling how many groups with a fiery passion existed, but failed to survive into the 80s. And he mentions that the situation is international in May 68, which he saw as an actual expression of anti-authoritarian revolutionary energy were an inspiration to him and those around him kind of in a small circle. Uh, but then he comments on the punk movement at the time, what he calls like the nihilist energy of punk, which he partially blames for the decay of the revolutionary ideas within those circles. And what he calls nihilism, you, I can call pessimism or defeatism. Zerzan sees nihilism not as negation of the present order, but submission to it. And I know people like Flowerbomb and, and others from Warzone have kind of confronted him on this issue. And I'm not sure what the conversation looks like, but evidently it seems that he students very, you know, very confident in his refusal of nihilism, but also, uh, as we've talked about before, postmodernism. And that's a disagreement I have with him. While I'm not educated on postmodernism and I'm not as interested in it, I do find, uh, obviously, disagreement with his nihilism. Like, nihilism is in many ways a part of my primitivism. Seeing nihilism as a negation or a refusal of civilization and its ideological and material bases. So I'm not, I just, again, I... I appreciate Zerzan being honest because it's it's emotional. Like I can feel Zerzan was very emotional writing this. I just disagree kind of with his conclusions. But you can see Punk as like you know you mentioned it's very it was very drug fueled and kind of defeatist. And again, like I'm not sure how that's nihilism. That just seems again like a pessimism. And I'm not sure how he reaches nihilism as that. And again, this is kind of almost semantics. But to me, it is also still more than that because words have a deep meaning to them and they also shape how we begin to think so i think framing it as nihilism is dishonest or if even if not dishonest kind of misses the point now for the last section i want to touch on it's about halfway through the main core of the book and it's as i mentioned quote also a spiritual movement which i've heard him express in other places before and i've i've always been interested in and i know people in my circle are interested in it he reflects on a talk he'd even turkey and there was a woman there who you know took him to the side and said that I, you know, she believed that green anarchism is at its core a spiritual movement. And unfortunately, they couldn't have a deeper conversation because she had to leave. But this really began to get his ear, the ears and his mind turning about what are the implications of such a notion. And he provides an anonymous quote that I, I actually really find beautiful. A quote, green anarchism is unique in that it finds importance in seeking our some form of spiritual connection. Uh, end quote. And so, again, 
that's an interesting way to frame it. And I know there's going to be a knee-jerk reaction. People, anti-theists, hyper-rationalists are going to throw their arms in the air and be spiritualism. That's just, you know, kind of like fetishization of like animism or whatever. And uh, that's a bunch of bullshit to me. Because I, I think spiritualism can mean a lot of things to many people. Spiritualism can be a synonymous to some people as organized religion, sure. But to some people, you know, it's different. And Zerzan even says, you know, and I'll paraphrase, he sees spirit, the spiritual components of primitivism to be wholeness, which is a furthering away from the division of labor, immediacy, and simplicity. Spiritual or not, these are beautiful foundations that I don't see how people could necessarily disagree with, with, its, base, with its basis. So uh, chapters three, um, called Techno Madness. I won't get too much into the details, but a lot of this is how like our our communication, our way of life is being represented through social media. So for example, the idea that like texting and the emojis or like social media and the decrease in actual friends. And this is a statistic he's mentioned way back. And I remember seeing it on YouTube in the conversation I believe he gave in, in Oregon, if I remember correctly. The idea that the, the how many people in a survey can say how many friends, close friends do you have? And it's decreased over time. And there's a strong relationship to Zerzan between that and the alienation or the separation because of social media and the, and the kind of, you know, industrialization almost of communication over social media, phone calls, video calls. And there's, and there, I think there is definitely something to that. And I know some socialists and progressivists will see, Oh, it's just how, how it's used under capitalism. But, and I think that's a lazy argument because if you just look at what civilization, uh, what social media is doing, it is, you know, the way you get notifications and your endorphin levels spike and you just get addicted to it. I'm not sure how that can be reworked because it's such an addicting thing. That's kind of intrinsically a big part of phones and how they're designed. And I'm very skeptical that something like that could be reworked. However, there's a part of this chapter that I'm very disgusted by. And I know, again, if you want to read more, Laner talks about it. Uh, He kind of has a very distinct take on, Autism. Yeah, it's a section called "Not So Close Encounters: Distance in the Age of Autism," where he essentially says that like the growth of alienation is found within the rise of people with autism. So I'm just going to quote a cha- uh, a, a paragraph so that I don't speak for Zerzan, but I speak his actual words. Quote: The social world is fragmented, and there is indeed a worrying trend toward greater fragility and emotional instability. The most severe example is likely autism, for which the prevalence estimates, uh, prevalence estimates have risen almost exponentially. If the capacity for empathy is the defining feature of human relationships, autistic individuals are more or less cut off in the human experience. Characteristically, they don't like to be touched. Autism literally means selfism, and is an inability to form affectionate, effective emotional contact with others, living in, quote, a world in which they have been total strangers from the beginning, end quote, a remarkable parallel on a deeper level with the fact that recent decades have witnessed the striking denomination of contacts with friends and neighbors. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, the idea that it's essentially being, that all the issues of social alienation are found in people with autism is essentially dehumanizing of autistic people in a way that it's like you see them as less less of people if he's very interested in what what he sees as human his own logical conclusion is that he has to see autistic people as lesser and to think they're cut out from the human experience as opposed to experiencing their own you know it's their own experience not to say that people with autism don't struggle because and a lot of that is because of the context they find themselves in the productivist industrialized society you know, as opposed to a society that sees them as whole individuals with something to provide the community or for themselves. And uh, Lehner, again, I'm going to mention him again, you know, it provides even some sources that people with autism in non-industrialized or more primitive societies might have had been seen very in a very positive light, or at least a light very different from that of which we see them now. And it's very unfortunate. I think that's the most disgusting thing from Zerzan I've ever read. I, and I disagree with Zerzan on a lot of things, but I would say that it's absolutely a disgusting position. And besides that, this whole chapter is kind of more reflective. Um, 
meant this is where you really didn't see a lot of his influence from Adorno. He begins to mention him more. The idea of uh, the disappearing act, which is uh, an interesting section that I appreciated. Um, and I'm going to, again, quote, quote, already in the 1960s, Theodore Adorno found the computer to be, quote, the bankruptcy of petition of consciousness, end quote. Now we are at the threshold of, threshold of cybernetic existence, wherein the self emerges as a shifting matrix of animate and inanimate part. This is being accomplished insofar as we have reduced ourselves to the machine's level. Quote, the very possibility of subjectivity and the generation of meaning for the future, end quote, is at stake, as Gary Pukar Lindgarden put it. As a te technoculture advances in its fast forward cause, course, what has been underdeveloped is the result. Quote, we are highly developed in psychopathology as in technology. Uh, concluded Jules Henry. Lightning speed of connectivity, increasing disconnection between among people, considerable regress in substantive communication. I, I would agree with a lot of that, that again, that essentially that the, the machine is acting as a sort of middleman between us and other individuals, and almost as an analysis of ourselves. We still have to me be mediated by technology. And that's essentially what this whole chapter is about. And so I'm going to kind of finish off chapter three there. Because I think you'll get more out of it just reading it, because it's kind of again, kind of a larger elaboration on the develop the speed of which technology is growing in in relation to our alienation from ourselves and from one another. And so I don't want to kind of just keep rambling on about that. The last section, the last chapter I'll talk about is philosophy anti philosophy. There is one more chapter titled "Where Where Are We and Where Are We Going?" A conversation with Steve uh, Kirk and Bellamy Fitzpatrick, which is actually from the Oak Journal. Uh, audio audio content uh which i recommend you just listen to or find online i believe it is on anarchist library if i'm not mistaken i would just read that i'm not going to get too into it because i think it's actually kind of not as important to the book itself and so philosophy anti-philosophy is interesting because zerzan goes to call himself a non-philosopher when in reality and again as laner talks about it's kind of his anti-philosophy or non-philosophy is a philosophy of philosophy and he kind of goes on that it's a very impersonal perspective, that it's not individualistic. But then his own notes on freedom, that section from chapter two, is actually quite philosophical and very personal. So I kind of almost see it's almost a rejection. I think it's almost an overcompensation on how often philosophy, especially modern philosophy, postmodernism, is a rejection of a lot of what Zerzan believes to be true. So I think it's almost an overcorrection. And, and that's whatever, but it's interesting, again, that this whole chapter is very reflective. The last two chapters are extremely reflective. I would say the last half of the book is more reflective than it is analytical. And it's interesting that it becomes more so in his non-philosophy. And I guess he might just say, well, it's my anti-philosophy. But again, it's almost like a philosophy of philosophy. And he touches on the puzzle of symbolic thought, which is kind of a continuation from chapter one, art and meaning, in which you begin to see his kind of criticism of art uh, which I know a lot of people find to be kind of just weird and they don't find it important, but he kind of goes on about how it's more of a representational of the symbolic and it's not necessary. Art as a, as a strict notion is only comes about and is important under the concept of the ritual in its representation of the world around you, as opposed to immediacy. And he has a beautiful two sections on titled night and then one titled death in which he kind of sees Knights has this almost reflective, meditative character to it, which I think it's interesting, and I feel quite similarly. And again, it's quite personal. And I'm almost wondering, one thing I've left wondering after reading stuff about that is how can, you know, maybe what conversations can we have with modern foraging people about their understanding of night? Do they find it scary? I'm assuming they do in some way, but also quite peaceful. I mean, it depends on the specific culture, and I'm sure that some of them, depending on the predators they have around them, would feel more fearful than others. So I'm almost wondering how some communities feel about that sort of content. And then he also has one on death, which is about a nine-page nine reflection on kind of how death at one point wasn't seen the same way it is now. Like, sure, people might have feared death, but the idea is because we aren't living full, healthy, unmediated lives, death feels like the absolute end in that it comes too quick. And I'd, I'd say that's kind of a very oftenly expressed position. And I don't think Zerzan's in the wrong for speaking on stuff like that, even though at times it kind of comes off as, as if no people in prehistory ever feared death. And I'm not sure there's totally a basis for that, but I 
absolutely there was a different understanding of what life and death meant to those people as opposed to how we feel now in our age of mediation and alienation and he has another chapter on the issue of meaning in the age of nihilism which i won't get too much into because again my criticism of his understanding of nihilism is that he sees it as a form of pessimism or defeatism but overall it's it's fair in so far that he sees a lot of people abandoned revolutionary ideas in favor of of kind of submission or defeatism and that they can't do anything and that it also impacts again our understanding of life kind of going back to his commentary on, on what death is and so he kind of sees that we have to overcome nihilism in the, in order to redeem life which again same criticism i won't beat a dead horse he has a section on the problem with Adorno, who is his influence on the concept of negative dialectics. And Zerzan says, you know, I have the influence, but he also has speaks in his own criticism of where Adorno went with it, but also kind of the process of the dialectical analysis as a whole, which is something that I think people, I think we need to confront more is our inherited relationship to Hegelianism and dialectics which is a big part of modern leftism, even if we try and not claim it is. And then Arbor, you know, we have a rupture with leftism as green anarchists, but we still in many ways contain that. And people like Kevin Tucker have really started to push that uh, in different work. And I would say that I would hope that Kevin Tucker and others uh, would speak on it. And again, I'm going to mention him for the hundredth time. Julian Lehner has a beautiful criticisms and is more of an influence from, again, egoism like Max Stirner, but also uh, Deleuze and Guattari, for those who are familiar with them. And so I would look into some of those works. That's kind of what I got from this is almost, I think that's a good springboard into how our more understanding of history can be. Uh, but there's also people like uh, Kevin Tucker who are more critical of having theory at all and just kind of seeing history for what it is without having to be bogged down by, by it all. But I'm not sure I totally agree because that kind of almost comes off as a intellectual defeatism in some form. But I also understand that when you become so concerned about the theory, it's, it's kind of pseudo-intellectualism that you kind of lose focus on the bigger, the bigger issues of civilization and of alienation. Uh, he had another beautiful section called Experience with the idea of more immediate understanding in relationship to other people. Uh, and I'm actually going to give a, 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 quick, a quick quote about how he believes experiences occurring in the modern age. Quote, we experience an assaultive, fragmenting, and numbing quality of life. We left with no such a sense of what authentic experience could consist of. Accomplice to the devastation is postmodern culture, which has worked hard to undermine any such concept of authenticity. It is, and maybe always has been, mysterious how our experiences reveal the way things are, how it works. Hume, Kant, and many others have tried to address this. How do we go beyond the immediate data of experience? Again, we run into problematic terms. Can content of our experience be legitimately referred to as data? End quote. And so, again, I think it's interesting. He poses interesting questions. What is experience? How do we quantify experience? What are its implications for how we express the world around us? So, again, I, this whole section kind of is a good springboard for, in, for reflection and, and viewing how we already see our established concepts. And then I would say the most beautiful part of this is the section called Oh Lost, where he talks about, you know, what has been lost through the development of civilization. And I'm going to actually once again read, but I'll read the whole section. It's about a page and a half. Oh Lost, the temper of the times is that of emptiness, exhaustion, a sense of disintegrating end time in which the end game plays itself out slowly, corrosively. Both physically and spiritually, the life world seems to be buckling under a massive weight or force of estrangement. Dialogue, relationships, everything is in peril. As usual, this didn't arrive overnight. I think the unrelieved negativity of the late 70s banned Joy Division. Its lead singer, Ian Curtis, was a, was a suicide at age 23. Named for a Nazi sex slave brothel, Joy Division's bleakness foreshadowed today's general immersiation. See Mark Fisher's Ghost of My Life or his lecture, The Slow Cancellation of the Future. A society darkens, unlikely voices make themselves heard. Beginning in the 90s, novelist Michael Hallebach, I'm probably totally saying that wrong, has pointed to a landscape which finally, with finally no energy left, a terminal emptiness. The overall theme of misery in this work has an eschatological quality. It's not surprising that Hallebach has seen a nasty, wholly non-politically correct character, views religions as society's only hope. 
His outlook seems to be widely shared. Ben Jeffrey called it, quote, depressive realism. Sociologist Bruno Latour, with his post-secularity notion, appears to be think in a similar vein, not calling for religious wars, obviously, but for an acknowledgement of belief as perhaps a last footing for a deteriorating existence. Surrender of one kind or another calls. One time Dark Mountain nature activist and civilization critic Paul Keensworth threw in the towel not long ago. His reward was a New York Times Magazine feature, April 4th, or April 29th, 2014, in which he announced the idea of overcoming his nightmare as a delusion. Keynes North deepened the level of defeat in the June 21st, 2019 emergency, Emergence Magazine podcast, The Language of the Master. He argues that modern written language is a tool for ecocide, but there is no solution. In fact, the primary fallacy of language, he averts, is setting up a reality in terms of problems to be solved. Thus, not only is there hope of altering reality, the very idea or conception of doing so is delusional. How could there be a more supine result, response to the reigning and horror show? More important viscerally in our everyday lives is the amount of suffering we experience. For about a year, I've tried to be there for a very close friend who lives with suicide on a very real basis. I have a feeling that most of you know or know more individuals than ever who are an extremist. For some, surrender is not an option. Ultimate redemption still beckons, and they will play it out until the end, as did courageous Will von Spronson, who died in a battle against unfreedom, summer 2019. Again, very beautiful, very reflective, and I, I, you know, I support Serzan being so reflective, and I want more of this from him. And his acknowledgement that how much of this is personal, and I feel like he's almost in this middle ground between his more orthodox primitivism of human nature, anthropological realism, and this more personal approach. And he might not see those in contradiction, but I think there is perhaps something to be said about that relationship between those two. And so this is where I'm going to end it. I know I talked more about the content of the book, but I've also, I hope that, you know, I've given my own experience, you know, my own thoughts, my experiences with the book, and I piqued your interest and I, like I said, I've skipped over a few sections, even one chapter entirely, because I almost I don't want you to un, to get the the idea that I'm giving you my idea of Zerzan's works, like interpreting his works for you. I'm simply giving my understanding of his ideas through my own lens and my own ideas. But I don't want to speak for Zerzan like this is what he's saying through some other lens that that is not his own, his own. Excuse me. <laughs> um, and so I hope that this this has interested you that you have some some interest in pursuing reading this book and like i said it's out uh through feral house you know in, uh go to www.feralhouse.com um honestly i would support them they're on twitter find them there feral house they were awesome and sent me this free kind of advanced review copy of the book and i think that zerzan is an amazing writer, amazing thinker who I disagree with on many points, but is important to the anarcho-primitivist movement. And we are in many ways in debt to his work and his influence. And uh, check out his Anarchy Radio, which is an awesome Tuesday nights, uh, depending where you're at the time. Uh, it's online if you want to find older videos of it. He has his own website. Um, honestly, I would say that Zerzana is one of my biggest influences and he's a beautiful person with beautiful ideas. And again, I have my disagreements, and that's good because I think totalitarian agreement is a negative aspect of kind of a revolutionary liberatory future. But I'll end it there. Thank you for being here. This was episode 18 of the Uncivilized podcast. Have a great day.